Hello! I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. Here's Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. The others will be along shortly. It's really chilly outside, so if you're listening live, let's hope you're under the doona or you are in a toasty warm place. Hope so anyway, because it is ferociously cold outside there. Uh, Today, we're going to uh, take you to the uh, Federation Square when it was raining and pouring June the 3rd. That was Monday. And June the 3rd, of course, was Mabo Day, Eddie Mabo Day. And uh, I went down there because I I think that uh, people are looking for a national day day. in, to replace Australia Day, I think June the 3rd would be a perfect candidate because, of course, it is the date when uh, the uh, meaning of Australia met uh, uh, Indigenous and uh, settler communities had to face each other off. Anyway, we, we went down there and uh, I collected some material so that you could go down there too because it was a very important day. We're uh, going to be uh, finishing that interview, hopefully, with uh, the uh, Bernard uh, Constable from the uh, Shearers Union. Uh, we, were, we went, uh, last week we listened to some history which is important stuff about, in fact, where the Labor Party began. Uh, but now we're going to uh, hopefully talk to Mr Constable about uh, what are the issues for uh, rural and shearers, shearing workers for today. Bring it to the con- uh, bring it to the city. This is the world out there. Australia is a big place. Uh, it's not just the cities. Uh, so we'll get a perspective on that. And I should jump in here now and warn people who only listen to Solidarity Breakfast, those ingrates, uh, to listen to This Is The Week That Was. Fabulous stuff. Uh, Kevin's not going to be on this morning because he's got a faulty line. His phone is busted. We can't speak to him. So it's not my fault. So don't ring me up. Don't be aggrieved. Uh, but he will be here live next week for Radiothon. Uh, next week is the Radiothon day for Solidarity Breakfast. We'll all be here live. We'll all be calling for uh, some donations. We've got uh, $1,700 to contribute to the pot for 3CR, keeping uh, people uh, people uh, generated radio on air, 3CR Radical Radio. 
Uh, but that includes not just us, but it includes you, the listeners. Uh, and, uh, we, uh, then going to follow, then we, then we went to Humphrey. We had a chat with Humphrey. Uh, he went straight to the nub after the election. He went straight to the nub to, for, to a socialist republic, which is, of course, what's on our, all our lips. Exactly. All, all on our lips. So we've got, uh, interesting things to talk about and a peruse today. Uh, but I'm going to remind you of something really important. Three CR Radiothon twenty nineteen, June the third to the sixteenth. Did you know that you can pledge your support to three CR Radiothon now and pay up later? Call the station during business hours on nine four one nine eight three double seven and tell us what you'd like to donate, and then pay your donation later. Three CR Radiothon twenty nineteen, Power Radical Radio. Down there. Are you okay? No, I'm stuck. Stuck? Yeah, I'm stuck in a country that for two decades has done nothing on climate change. Oh no! Can I grab you a rope? No, there's a rock on me. I, I can't move. A rock? What the hell? Well, it's a weight of despair and an apathetic government, powerful lobby groups, and an indifferent mainstream media. Dear God, what on earth can I do to help? Go now. And pledge money for the 3CR Radiothon. Great. What do I do? Head to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. Anything else? Yeah. Remember in your donation to mention the Beyond Zero Emissions radio program. I'll go right away. Hi. Hi. We're from Braver College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. And uh, if you might like to uh, change that BZE to uh, Solidarity Breakfast. But, you know, it's just between yes. friend, friends. Yes. Because, yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, uh, we're all in the same boat, so yep. it really doesn't matter. Um, g'day, g'day, Rebecca. Good morning. Yes, that's right. You braved the cold. Yes. I'm still in my big woolly jumper yep, and coat. I've got my scarf on still. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's exactly right. That's why we need your donations. We need yes. heating at 3CR. Keep the lights on. <laughs> Keep the lights on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just telling listeners that I went down to uh, Federation Square. Yeah, I was listening in the car. car yeah. <laughs> Marbo and Day. Marbo yeah. Day, pretty important. So anyway, yeah. we'll hear the first part. It's, I've divided it up into two and uh, with a little bit of music interlude. We're at uh, Fred Square. It's raining, uh, it's, but it's June the 3rd and it's Eddie Marbo Day. Okay, Wendy, why is it important to be here today? Of God. I don't know. I just think we should be celebrating that um, Aboriginal land rights were recognised, which one never really thought would happen. And good for Marvo. <laughs> those of you under the bloody umbrella and those of you... I'll introduce you all, because I think I know everyone... Yeah, uh, every one of you. We've got uh, the Foreign Minister for the West Papua, Dr Jacob Rumbiak here. 
We've got Elsie here. What suburb are you from, Elsie? Avondale Heights, great. We've got Chris from Mount Eliza, Wendy from St Kilda, Sue from Caulfield, Annie from South Melbourne, Port Melbourne, South Melbourne, Josh from Beau Morris, Lee from Brunswick, Peter and Margaret from Coburg and Dougie from who knows where and Adele from Whittlesea. Dougie likes to uh, keep his thing. Look, on a more serious note, we're here to uh, mark Marbo Day. Um, let's not forget that in the Torres Strait, uh, the land um, uh, governed by the Torres Strait Authority, it is a public holiday because they recognise the significance of Marbo Day. Uh, Marbo Day is an exceptionally important day, not just to Torres Strait Islanders and uh, Aboriginal people. It's an exceptionally important day because it marks for the first time in Australian colonial history that Indigenous people were able to use the courts to overturn something which was so obvious that's extraordinary that it held reign for over 204 years. That's terra nullius. Now, when the British colonised many parts of the world, they entered into treaties with the Indigenous population. And when they came to Australia, they were given specific instructions to enter into treaties with Indigenous people. Specific instructions in 1788, in the 1820s, in the 1830s, in the 1840s, which were ignored by the colonisers. And because in their opinion, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders didn't actually live in the one place that the land was not inhabited. It belonged to no one. Terra nullius. And after a 10-year battle through the racist Bielke-Peterson courts, uh, Eddie Marbo, Father Passy and Grandfather Rice, with the assistance of uh, the University of uh, Townsville, academics from the University of Townsville, and lawyers from Melbourne took the case to the High Court and on the 3rd of June 1992, the High Court found that Indigenous Australians had rights to land in law because of their prior occupation of this land. And those of you who are old enough to remember will remember that the uh, response was swift and brutal by the government and the media and most people in this country who believe that their backyards were going to be taken over. They're going to be hordes of Indigenous people camping in their backyard. I, I, I do not make this up. Just go back to the Murdoch Press for June 1992 and, and, and you'll see all that. So it's an, it was an extraordinary uh, reaction. And then legislation was passed to try to whittle down the High Court decision. But that High Court decision stands strong. What it has meant is that over 20% of the Australian landmass is now owned by Indigenous Australians as a direct consequence of the Mabo decision in 1992. Obviously, the Mabo decision didn't address the question of treaty, didn't address the question of Indigenous rights, it didn't address the question of uh, 
compensation. It didn't address the question of a truth-telling. But it, it is one of the most important and historic moments that we have had in this country. For the first time, the institutions were forced to acknowledge that this land was not empty at the time of occupation and the indigenous inhabitants who had lived here for over 60,000 years had rights to land in law, British law, Australian law. Now this particular banner was designed by Ellen Jose, who uh, chaired the 2002 celebrations for Mabo Day, which we had in Melbourne at the Melbourne Town Hall, when there were thousands of people who attended the celebration. I've got some photos you can have a look at later on if you're interested. Um, people came, uh, Father Passy came uh, down, uh, Benito Mabo and uh, Eddie Mabo's children came down in 2002 and there was a great celebration here to mark the 10th anniversary of Mabo Day. This is uh, Ellen's installation called Rest in Peace Terra Nullius. Now those of you who know a little bit about Torres Strait Islander culture will know three years after an individual has died, the mourning period has finished and the, a gravestone is actually erected on the grave to acknowledge that mourning period is finished. Now this is marble, marble from South America and uh, Italy from Carrara. It's got the five-pointed star, the five-pointed <laughs> Torres Strait Islander star, which uh, signifies the five distinct Torres Strait Island groups, distinct cultures and distinct languages. And what she has here is a very funny little quote. She's got, resting peace, terra nullius, 26th of January, 1788 to the 3rd of June, 1992. So in 1995, this installation, which went around Australia, this installation was basically a tongue-in-cheek tomb opening, because that's the ceremony called tomb opening ceremony for Terra Nullius. Now we still have those, uh, unfortunately because the political nature of the, of the installation, uh, although most of the ga major public galleries around Australia have uh, Ellen's work, this work was actually never, never bought. <laughs> never. So the family still have it, my son uh, Joshua and the rest of the family, we still have it. And hopefully in about two or three years, we will re-erect this for the 30th anniversary of Marbo. Right, the 27th in three years' time, we'll re-erect the tomb opening and possibly uh, we'll negotiate with Federation Square to actually have it here. Right. But uh, it is a tongue-in-cheek ironical statement on Terra Nullius. Even Terra Nullius deserved uh, a tomb opening ceremony in 1995.
Now normally uh, we have a microphone, I can take out the microphone, the crowd is small, but I'm happy to take out the microphone if other people wish to talk. It is an open gathering. Historically we've always uh, you know, gone round and those who wish to talk have talked and those who wish to not say anything, don't say anything. So who would like to step forward? You get the umbrella, that is the key. If you, if you talk you get the umbrella. Come on! You always have a word to say. You're never short for a word. Thank you, Joe. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Also, thank you for Auntie Ellen, although she's not with us, but her soul's still with us. Her physique is uh, already gone, but uh, spirit and uh, her real life still with us because our Pure life is not uh, physics, but uh, uh, we have uh, a spirit, because spirit is a long life. Uh, so thank you very much for uh, all of you in here. I'm also very proud that uh, I still join with you to celebrate Mabo Day. Uh, but before I start, uh, on behalf of the people of West Papua, we would, like, we would like to pay our very deep uh, respect and our salute to uh, our leader, uh, Mabo, because he uh, uh, represents all indigenous people around the world. And of course, uh, we are in here, uh, we also part of the mission. So we don't want to know for, from where we're coming from, from where our background, but as long as we are human uh, being, we are hu human life, we are world family. So we come together in here because we want to save our world as a human place, as a better place for all of us. So uh, thank you very much for um, a leader, uh, Mabu, that uh, you also put very basic uh, understanding to all of us as a human life, to keep the struggle life, because every or each of nation on the world we have uh, the right to talk about our basic life. So today uh, it's a big day. Maybe uh, we look that's uh, only small group in here, 
but don't worry because uh, from small it will grow up become big mountains we can get lots of people in the future so uh, I look this this a beautiful rain this is not a problem for to us I think uh, this is a part of uh, how the nature give us life so uh, the rain not only that's a, a problem to us so we accept it as a big bless, as a spirit bless to us. So it's not become a problem to avoid us to come to celebrate uh, Mabo Day. So once again, I can't uh, speak too much, but I believe that uh, the spirit of uh, Mabo still in us, and we still, still uh, continue to spread it, spread it to uh, other people, although they're not with us today, but we will continue talk to other people to understand about the big mission and vision of how each patient, each uh, uh, nation, they must stand for protect their land rights. Because I believe that today, when indigenous day already finished, and then we will have and have a forest, we have and have a beautiful place. Because today we still have indigenous people they still defend the uh, place as a best place, place we need for uh, protect our world from ozone. So today we stand in here because we still have a small forest here. I hope that we will continue it because Mabo defends the land right to protect, protect our natural environment so that next generation will enjoy and keep it in our life. Thank you very much. And uh, happy anniversary of Mother Day. Well, I suppose I'm here today because I thought um, I, I didn't think that um, that Eddie Mabo was going to um, was going to to win against the um, the High Court, and um, and I think it's I, I thought it was quite miraculous that it, that he was able to win, and um, and I think we need to um, stand up against systems of injustice. I feel very passionate about um, the injustice in the world today. And, um, and I'm a bit disappointed that we haven't got more people here today. Um, but um, as they say, things, um, you know, things grow, but, um, how does the song go? Little From things, little things, things um, big things grow. And, um, yeah, that was um, Vincent Lanyari. That was um, that was pretty amazing too. Um, and I, I feel every time I hear that song and I um, and I see the photo with Gough Whitlam pouring the sand into Vincent Lanyari's hand, it makes me feel emotional and um, it never, you know, it never stops me from shedding tears. And um, yeah, I um, it makes me feel emotional just thinking about it. It's, um, it, it shows that when people t come together and, and stand up for their rights that, that they can win and they can defeat these systems of injustice. Well, I'm, I'm Elfie from Avondale Heights and I'm here. Well, I feel very emotional too. <sighs> I'm here to honour the Indigenous the indigenous people of this land 
I mean, their suffering has been immense and they have been brave and they've been noble, they've been consistent and hung in there and fought for their rights and fought for justice. And, I mean, I thought the least I can do is come on a wet day. Who cares? This is nothing compared to what they've had to endure. And I also... um, I feel very close to the way the Indigenous people see the land, the flora and the fauna, Mother Earth. Right? That's, I feel very connected with that, you know. Um, and, and really, you know, the least I can do is show up and show my support for this very important um, day. Very important day. And uh, I'm... Yeah, I'm honoured to be able to be here for for them, Do for all of us. Do you think it should be a national day? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a very, very important day. Yes. See, it's quite, it's quite fascinating, really, when you understand that this has been Reconciliation Week, and Reconciliation Week is booked in by National Sorry Day and Mabo Day. They're the two days that National Reconciliation Week is booked in by and how little has actually happened in this city of 5.2 million people uh, during Reconciliation Week. I mean, we were, uh, our family was at, uh, at a council function, uh, not this Saturday, previous Saturday, a flag-raising ceremony. Some of the councils do flag-raising ceremonies. Most don't. Uh, some of the councils attempt to do something. You see very little happening in the state government. This is the... Uh, this is Federation Square, the centre of the city. You would think on Marbo Day there would be uh, maybe Torres Strait Islander flags up here. Uh, but you don't see that. And most people wouldn't there even... There is a Torres Strait flag. Well, that's, that's, that's the uh, normal three, but I'm just saying up, up along, oh, there, along there. You know, to make, make a day of it. It doesn't take much to organise a day. There were some... Uh, celebrations organised for the 25th anniversary around the corner but it seems if you haven't got a naught or a five uh, after the date it doesn't really matter but uh, we'll be here next year oh, well, let's get this in one yeah time. yeah oh, we get a spot on six five four three two one Gather round people, I'll tell you a story, an eight-year-long story, power and pride, the British Lord Festing, the Vincent Lingari, were opposite men on opposite sides. Vestie was fat, with money and muscle, beef was his business. Broad was his door, Vincent was lean, spoke very little, he had no bank balance, our dirt was his floor. From little things, big things grow, from little things, big things grow. Gurinji were working. Nothing but rations Once they had gathered The wealth of the land Daily depression 
Got tighter and tighter Good engine inside it They must make a stand They picked up their swags Started off walking At Woody Creek They sat themselves down Now it don't sound like much But it sure got tongues talking Back at the homestead And then in the town From little things Big things grow From little things Big things grow Bestie man said I double your wages Seven quid a week You have in your hand get this invention which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world and puts it in an intergalactic dimension. 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camot and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. Join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash outoftheblue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019. Thursday, 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed, but having a great night is. Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope. Welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, yeah, you were listening to uh, a, a lovely day song. Down yeah, yeah. A day down, day down at the Federation Square in the rain. Yes, <laughs> from Arbo Day. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, uh, last week we had a chat to Bernie, and now uh, we wanted to continue that chat, right? 
Yeah, so this morning yeah. we're joined once again by the General Secretary of the Shearers and Rural Workers Union, Bernie Constable, who, as you said before, returns for the second week in a row. Welcome back to the program, Bernie. Thank you very much, Marcus and crew. Yeah. And I'd like to wish all your listeners a happy long weekend. Yes. Uh, ce- celebrating Republic Day. Yes, that's <laughs> right. Republic, bugger. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we'll have to celebrate the long weekend full stop. Yeah, that's right. Keep on the fight. Keep fighting. One step at a time. Brought brought to you by the union movement, we might add. Obviously, (laughs) the listeners know that. We're preaching to the converted. (laughs) (laughs) And how are we all? Yeah, we're good. Yeah, we're going good, Bernie. Yeah. We we got you back because uh, we had a great conversation, but we didn't get to the present day issues that are facing rural workers and shearers. That's right. For those that were listening last week, we... uh, spoke about the history of how the Shearers and Rural Workers Union came about. Yep. Uh, in, in view of the light that um, on the 1st of May 2019, the SRW celebrated their 25th anniversary. Uh, the SRW was uh, founded in um, the 1st of May 1994 uh, when we sacked the, um, the Australian Workers Union and took back the shearing industry for the workers. Now, that's a really interesting trend away from uh, amalgamating uh, because you wanted uh, – what was what was the purpose? Tell, tell us about – this is a very important issue. Well, basically, the, the SRW came about because of the ACT and the TU and the Labor Party had a strategy of reducing the Australian Union movement to 20 big unions. No 20 big unions were supposed to encompass – all the industries represented by Australian workers, and um, they were going to look after us all, you know, and it was going to be easy for the uh, the union movement to, um, you know, uh, save cut costs and uh, save duplication and all that sort of stuff, but it just didn't, didn't work. It's a bit like the parade of the, the suits instead of the parade of the penguins. Yeah, yeah, and... Um, you had a situation where the Labor Party was pushing it, obviously, because the union movement, with a small amount of unions, was e- easy to carve up for the uh, factional system. So that mm. was the reason why they were were uh, so. In- and a lot of yeah. lot of workers and industries uh, lost their identity, Bernie, with the uh, these amalgamations into super unions. The shearers obviously saw what was coming and decided to go it alone. Yeah, we we broke out early because we knew well. We had a good idea of what was coming. Um, as it was, the AWU had decided in the lead-up to it to um, to uh, mitigate the cost of uh, organising something as diverse and widespread and hard to organise as the pastoral industry. Uh, they decided that uh, they'd withdraw all pastoral industry organisers and, um, and we'd just send our ticket money in. Okay, so if we look at the current structure of the shearers and rural workers, Bernie, um, you're the general secretary, but you're still a worker out I in am, the field. Yeah. Um, probably the only general secretary in Australia that um, still slaves away. Um, I've been a in my career as uh, I've been a shearer for about thirty five years, and um, I've also been the off season, and because. Um, various black bands placed on me because of my involvement in the union movement I also go away through picking which I, I actually was a, a picker before I started shearing so I've got 37 seasons in the fruit industry so I've got a 
a real good grasp on the problems that happened there. Tell us about this black banning that's um, plagued you. Well, it, it hasn't plagued just me. It's plagued a lot of people. And I remember when I first got involved as a young bloke in the, um, in the union movement in the shearing industry, I was told by some wise older blokes who'd had it happen to them before, they said, you're going to have to start working further out. And by that means, you've got to work further away from home because they can they can black ban you from working around your own local area, but it's a bit harder to sort of get all the contractors to to, um, to uh, black ban you and it's a bit hard to work in areas where you're not as known and if you keep your head down a bit because you know you've got to work to be able to then go home and, and agitate um, it's a bit hard for them to know who you are for the moment. And traditionally, older blokes protect younger blokes. But now that's uh, it's gone a bit by the wayside with the whole idea of individualism in society has been pushed by um, the various uh, farmers groups into the into the shearing industry and. Um, you know, both don't stick together anywhere near it. Oh, so, so what you're saying is that they want to make individual contracts with individual shearers? Well, no, they want to promote an idea that if you become a shearer, yeah. you can get in, work hard, and save your money and then get out. So you've got, you haven't got a long-term um, group of people working in the industry that will stick with each other and... and um, be prepared to buck when uh, bad uh, policies and bad uh, practices are thrown at you. Hmm. Largely the trend of the last 25 years in this country of casualisation, insecure work, again, as you said before, pitting worker against worker, yep. breaking down the whole uh, idea of solidarity and then unionism. Yeah, but it, it's um, been a bit different in the shearing industry or and in the fruit industry because... We have never been a permanent workforce because mm. the work is seasonal. We travel, we move around, we also sit, sit through long periods of unemployment at different times. And um, that, that was a bonus for the shearing industry because if you're working away, a lot of times, well, you used to regularly stay in shearing huts. Yeah, so you're talking about camaraderie. Mm. Very much so. You'd sit around the, the fire at night, yeah. have a couple of beers and talk about what you've seen and what you've experienced and what you've put up with and how you've changed it. Yeah, tale-telling. And, and the, yeah, exactly, oral history um, is, is the way that um, it, it was. That's how oral history came about, people passing on information in various ways. And the cheering industry is full of it. Unfortunately, that's declining because... People are being promoted to not stay at properties. They're, uh, they're, they're sort of encouraged to, to live and travel out from where they... Um, from towns and that sort of stuff. You don't no, but what you're out. saying is that they've offloaded the cost of accommodation and, uh, to the actual individual worker. I mean, if you're going to put it bluntly, well, right? no. If, if, if I go away, mm-hmm. under the award, if I go away somewhere... Yeah. A, uh, the employer, be it the farmer or be it the contractor, has got to pay for the accommodation. Oh, yeah, cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but the thing is, that is also uh, being eroded just mm. gradually, chip, chip, chip away. And um, 
you know, you have to negotiate these things now, whereas you never used to have to negotiate. And folks that uh, try and get what they are entitled to um, sometimes don't get a job, and that's, that's effectively black banding as well. Yeah, so, so what you're saying is that organise... How, how do you go about organising then, Bernie? <laughs> yeah, with exceptional difficulty. Because okay. no-one rings in anymore and says, oh, we've got a shed start somewhere, um, which which is always the way. You go to a shed that was starting and you'd hear from where another shed was going and that sort of stuff. People don't bring in because they don't want to, they don't want to join the union anymore. So, How many uh, members do you have, Bernie? Oh, look, that, that's... If I told you, Marcus, I'd have to blow the radio station up and... and um, <laughs> <laughs> I, won't, I won't be telling you that, old mate. Yeah, yeah. So, sure so is. what? So, so, what you're saying is that it, the whole, whole idea of uh, workers working, it, it, we, people have to go back to the real basics. People have to understand why solidarity is important and why solidarity works and why it's in their interests. Yep, you've got to um, explain to people why they should leave, listen to. Um, say, the rural media, and um, why they shouldn't watch... Uh, well, they should take television news with a grain of salt and they should listen to, um, you know, programs like yourself to get truly informed. But the thing is, most people are not doing that these days and they, they're not that interested. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. Many years ago, I saw from an old bloke. The old bloke had been involved in the... Um, the movement, the union movement, and he sort of, well, like everyone, you just get old. Hmm, he, yeah. he was in his 60s, and he was still cheering. And he said, look, when I, when he first started cheering, blokes would sit on the board, it's a shearing board, that's the, the, the work platform that you would sit in the shearing shed um, at Smoko or dinner, and um, yeah, just as a resting platform. Mm. And he said blokes would talk about history and politics and poetry and what they're reading. He says, now you sit here and all they want to talk about is the price of fat lambs because they're all want to be cocky. They all want to be employers themselves. He says, that's how much has changed. And this is going back for well, more than 20 years. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're a winner. So, um, oh, we should play that song. Everybody um, thinks they're a winner. Well, they all have to go. You'll get a go. Yeah, yes. no, but it's also that bit, that American thing about oh, um, you know everybody can sink sink, but one person's a winner. Yeah. You know, it's it's the Terry Inferno principle of society. At least Paul Newman won. Everyone else roasted. <laughs> <laughs> so so that, that is the current environment. I suppose it's not just in the shearing industry, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, that's what us as uh, people who are involved in the ideals that we deserve better have got a battle against. And what um, what campaigns has the union been involved in or currently campaign in the, in the shearing and in the pastoral industry, Bernie? Well, um, we've, we've been involved in... Well, I, I'll... I'll tell you a couple of them, and it mightn't seem much, but, you know, small steps. Um, in the last probably 10 years, the union's been involved in, A, an issue about uh, the size of sheep, because sheep have been bred to be bigger 
over the last, well, probably the last 40 years, they've dramatically increased in size. Well, they've been going to McDonald's too. Yeah. Beg your pardon, sir? They've been going to McDonald's too. <laughs> well, quite possibly. And getting Uber. But it, it's, it's quite a bit to do with um, the actual uh, genetic breeding. Yeah. Of yeah. Rather than them rolling up to a, a drive, a drive-in uh, <laughs> afternoon. I'm just being foolish. <laughs> so um, what happens? The sheep have got bigger, and they've also, A, they get bigger, they breed them bigger to get bigger lambs for the uh, the meat sheep, and they breed them bigger and wrinkly, wrinklier for um, the wool sheep because they cut more wool. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. it's got to the stage where some of the rams are enormous, mm. and you know it's it's quite regularly you'd be you'd be shearing 130 or 40 kilo rams, and rams have got a, well, a great deal of aggression in them, mm. as well as strength. And if you're trying to wrestle something that sort of weighs, you know, one and a half or two times heavier than you, it's exceptionally dangerous. Yes. So we um, we sat down one day, um, a fella from. Um, uh, up towards Yeroa, um the Flying Ant Broughton. Say that again. He, his, name, his nickname was the Flying Ant. Okay. He wasn't, he wasn't a hugely big man, but he could shear a lot of shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And he comes to a meeting and he says, we've got to do something about the size of rams. So there's not much we can do about the size of rams, but what we could do is we investigated, and the best way to do it is to... Um, we looked into some sort of injection where you inject the rams before you shear them with a sedative, which slows oh, them down. Interesting. And, um, and uh, that means they're not as inclined to kick you, not as inclined to get up and wrestle and throw you around and that sort of stuff. And um, we uh, trialled, we, we looked into it and then we trialled various drugs and then we, we, we set on one. And um, the, the actual uh, executive, and this is how handy it is to have an executive that actually works in the industry, we actually trialled it, found um, this particular one particular drug, the best one, and that's become industry standard now. Even though it's not in the um, in the the uh, award, but it should be that uh, rams get injected. Everyone now follows it, and that that is one huge step forward for the shearing industry. Well, it's yeah, a workplace it's health and safety uh, yeah issue that's been uh, yeah been rectified. I guess you could say, yeah. Bernie. And that, that's one thing the union has done, which was something that it, it should have been done a long time before we were set up. But anyway, uh, the other thing is that um, health and now that we're on the issue of health and safety, uh, one of the things, an angle that you'd think that the uh, workers that are involved would see as a plus for a union organising or a co- collective uh, uh, effort is actually how. Um, straining on the back, mm-hmm. um, it is. Uh, Shearing is actually a very physical activity, and the idea that someone's been uh, shearing for thirty-five years is really quite fascinating to me, because it's uh, there must be a lot of health and safety issues going on there. Uh, it's a matter of um, how you do it. Yourself. Technique. Very <laughs> looking after yourself, but. Um no, it, it, it was it used to be there was a lot of older blokes that chore into, into their 60s. Mm. And um, I'm not quite into my 60s. I'm not far off there. And um, 
it was it was not uncommon to have blokes in the sixties in the shed. Whereas now, mm. in the last, I've just noticed it simply because I've gone from yeah looking at the older blokes to suddenly I'm one of the older blokes. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. always a bit of a fright, isn't it? Yeah, and I um oh last year the contractors I went away and shore with up in New South Wales and that I was the oldest bloke on the board by twenty years in a lot of cases. Which yeah. Now, those young blokes, where are they coming? Are they uh, small holders themselves who have gone into shearing or the sons of farmers or where, where or is it, it's, well, it's probably not all sons, it could be daughters too. Yeah, there's not that many women shearing. No. Um, mm. It's just simply too hard physically for them. Um, there's, there's a lot of cocky sons and there always has been cocky sons. Yeah, yeah. But there's been shearer sons and there's been people who have just wandered into the industry a bit um, who uh, like the lifestyle and really the, the wages are not real good in, in the industry compared to the uh, labour that you put into it. Yeah, we, we touched on that last week, Bernie, about in the concept of the old days, the uh, each sheep was worth a pot of beer and a box of matches. We touched on it briefly last week. How does that compare in the current time? That might set the scene. Well, um, currently a pot of beer would be worth $5 or $5. Yeah, it's a lot. And a packet of matches would be about 60 cents, so it's about $5.60. And we're getting uh, $3.20. Oh, oh that's yeah, the, the situation in Australia, wage stagnation, yeah. record low yeah. wage growth. Well, yeah, the politicians and big business profits soar and the workers are left right behind. Um, God, that's outrageous. We're way behind. How many sheep can you shear in, a, in an hour, do you reckon? Uh, well, look, because you're paid by piece rates, you're paid yeah. by yeah. sheep, mm. and the award actually talks about um, per hundred. Mm. So, yeah, that, that is how the rate is set, yeah. per hundred. And um, so you work four two-hour runs. That's how that's a day is divided into four two-hour runs. So you're working a full four-hour day. You'll you'll work. You'll start at seven thirty in the morning. Yep. Work till nine thirty. Yep. You'll have half an hour smoker. Mm. You'll work from ten till twelve and have an hour dinner. Mm. You'll work from one till three and have half an hour smoker. And you work from three thirty till five thirty. God, you must be fit. Well, yeah. <laughs> 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 the drama is when you when you go through like the last few years, there's been um, a, a lot of late time over the winter. Mm. So you lose your fitness, and then you go yeah. back in, you yeah. know, around the end of July, start of August, and, and uh, you go into training. Like, <laughs> you just the best training is just get in and cheer. <laughs> so, so I suffer, go through an immense amount of pain. Um, for about the first month before yeah. settled in. And, yeah, obviously you've got no, no intentions of retiring yet, Bernie, from being a shearer or from the union position. Not yet. Um, but, but I'll also talk about me, um, me other, me other uh, workplace. Yeah, the fruit picking. Yep. And I've been um, going up to the Golden Valley well, around the Shepparton area for, yeah. um, for the last 37 years. And um, that, that was always a fallback industry where I could get a job somewhere because, and no one was going to black me from 
significant because I was very good at the job. And um, I've always found that fruit picking was a great way of, like I said, for me, filling in time. But it also, I've seen, I saw over the years, people would come up from Melbourne or, or come down from Queensland or somewhere and do a season, and you could see some did like it and paid it away. Yeah. Some you'd see next year because mm. they liked it. They made a few dollars. And one of the big attractions for the fruit industry for a young bloke or a young person, because there was also a lot of young ladies, was the parties. Yeah. <laughs> but now that's all been eroded away because of contractors. Mm. Um, in the past, there was no contractors in the fruit industry. You would go and you would find a job through CES, or the Commonwealth Employment Service, which used to be, or the Harvest Trail um, sites or whatever. And, um, you know, the big towns that had their harvest labour offices, we could go and you could get all allocated to a, a grower. The grower would usually have huts on the place where you'd stay and you'd work. And, um, or if they didn't have huts, they'd have a caravan park on the place, get a side where you could put a tent or a caravan or whatever. And um, it was a great atmosphere. But now, in the last 10 years, it's gone from having no contractors in the fruit industry in, say, the Golden Valley, to now 70% of the work is done by, by people working for contractors. And those people, the majority, they're under four, most of them are under 417 visas, which is the, mm. the backpacker visa. But I've worked with some of them, and they're not backpackers. Um, yeah. They come simply to work and work and then go back to wherever they're from. Please. Yeah, I, I just wanted to ask about uh, is there what union work is being done around that? Well, it's in UW. Okay. Uh, well, it, it's in UW now. In the past, it was the AWU. The yeah, AWU no, but it's the NUW dropped, now. Dropped the baton. Here's mm. your Rural Workers Union now, early days, under my um, suggestion. Um, this is when I was just a um, you know, rank and file committee man. Um, we set up meetings and we, we promoted meetings all through the Golden Valley and up into the Sunraysia, and you just could not convince pickers to come along. Mm. It was exceptionally hard. Now, anyway, getting back to that, that traditionally a, a picker would go and work for a cocky. The cocky would pay them the bin rate, um, which was a bin rate used to be set at uh, between the Northern Victorian fruit growers or whatever group area that was in. And um, at one stage, the AWU, but they dropped the bat. But they kept up the, um, the, the, strategy, the formula that made up. They decided that um, the average person out in the paddock should be able to pick four and a half bins in the time um, that was allotted for a standard day for an orchard worker. And that, that four and a half bins was divided into the wages a, um, an orchard worker would make to, to work out how much per bin the picker would get paid. And that was the way it was. And the picker in the old days would get paid per bin for the full rate, full rate because they were getting paid by the employer. Yep. Now with contractors, the contractors will pay a bin rate but they will take out 20%. Yep. That's right. Um, and they'll pay 
take accommodation costs. Yeah, that's right. They'll put 30 people in a house and it's sort of stuff to charge 100 bucks a week or something. Well, Bernie, we haven't got enough time to go down this rabbit hole because we've come to the end of our conversation. But I'll yeah, tell you what, right. this particular scandal, which is the contractors in the food industry, fruit industry, yeah. is definitely a, uh, a point of concern. One thing I'd like to point out, in the shearing industry, there's contractors and there have been contracts in the shearing industry since before the First World War. Yep. When you're working for a contractor, you get paid the award rate. Yeah. The contractor actually charges the cocky. Yeah. What he makes, mm. whether it's ten percent on top of it or whatever. Yeah, for the organising. Yeah. But it, it, these contractors in the fruit industry are totally different kettle of fish, and mm. this is why that the legislation was brought out down in Victoria, which mm. I uh, the, the SRW had a great deal to uh, contribute to that means we're going to tidy it up, hopefully, as long as there's resources to police it. Yes, that's right. It's, yeah. that, it's always the nub. How many yeah. people do they employ to police? We've got yeah. the Labor Hire Licensing Authority now. Yeah. Hopefully they play a hand in the uh, well, that's yeah. what policing industry about. and clean yeah. it up. I mean, yeah, there's shocking stories about. of exploitation in that industry. Yeah, anyway, we have to finish it there, Bernie. Thank well, you very thanks, much for spending some time with us this yeah. morning. No worries. Thanks, Bernie. Enjoy the long weekend. <laughs> Yeah, we're going to a, a song now. How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you are. When journos are rated, democracy's faded. It's time that we all ought to ask. How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you are. Black children are dying. Don't see much trying It's time that we all ought to ask How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you ask More crimes in our name A secretive game It's time that we all ought to ask How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you ask Torture the need and worship the greed. It's time that we all ought to ask. How good is Australia? I guess it depends. Dry, too weak to ask why. It's time that we all ought to ask. How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you ask. Saying still young and free, well, you could have fooled me. It's time that we all ought to ask. How good is Australia? I guess it depends who you if all those who question are facing oppression, it's time that we all ought to ask. Yeah, bad quality.
But um, it was on Facebook and uh, it's uh, Les Thomas, who is our indefatigable uh, balladeer of Australian life. And uh, he pl- I put this up in comment about what's been going on over the last week in Australia. I, I saw this other Facebook uh, message where someone said apparently a friend of theirs in, in England uh, commented to his mate in Australia that Australia has now got the reputation of being a completely corrupt from top to bottom, <laughs> not only are our politicians, but our police are rampant. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I, I mean, that's Facebook land. But mm. anyway, uh, I uh, got to speak to Humphrey because Humphrey is gallivanting around. I'd forgotten that it was the Queen needed to be uh, honoured oh, on yes. Saturday, on Monday. You'd forgotten even we that must, was reason. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why there was a holiday on Monday. We People must, take uh, the holiday gratefully. but yeah. Celebrate our colonial whiteness. Yes. Yeah, but anyway, uh, Humphrey uh, took the opportunity to have a conversation with me about the Socialist Republic. So uh, let's go. Hello, Humphrey. How are you? I'm, I'm quite well. I hope you're getting better too. Yeah, a bit of a cold, yeah. but um, never mind. Um, let's uh, start on this uh, a socialist republic, which is a, a fitting thing to discuss after the uh, disastrous election. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there are ways in which... I mean, it was brought up as one of the kind of side issues that it might, if there was a change of government, that it might get back on the agenda again. But that was just the bourgeois republic that they were going to... Uh, that they were going to trot out, the one that um, the previous Prime Minister had led to one of his disasters in his career um, when Mr Turnbull was leading the Australian Republican movement. Um, Which actually says something, doesn't it, about the whole trajectory of the Republican uh, system that was on offer, which is what you really want to talk about, isn't it? It is indeed, indeed. I mean, there were plenty of people, of course, if we go back to the time, there were plenty of people um, who were very critical of the model that that was being offered to us, that it really changed only the one thing that you you would have uh, an Australian as the head of state rather than someone who was, you know, who, who was the head of state somewhere else as well. Now, I mean, I'm not opposed to that, and I think there are good reasons for doing it, but it's a minor concern. Um, I think, you know, some of the good reasons for doing it are that it would remove some of the confusion about the lines of political power in Australia. Because, you know, if you go back to 1975, I mean, I heard people quite a lot of them saying that John Kerr had acted on behalf of the Queen as if he was there to protect her investments. And she is, after all, one of the richest people in the world. I mean, let's not forget that. I mean, she's not like the, you know, the sort of, you know, Queen of, Queen of the Netherlands or something. You know, I mean, you know. Oh, and to be fair, as Governor-General, he is actually supposed to have been defending the uh, uh, interests of the monarchy, English monarchy. Well, not. I mean, what he was doing, of course, was defending the interests of the American Imperium in Australia. Yeah, I mean, much more interesting. An, he'd been an agent. He'd been working with the the Americans from the Second World War onwards. Um, Can you and, tell me a little bit more about that? That's very well, interesting to me. I mean, he was involved with this group that was concerned with Papua New Guinea. Uh, and they set up a school after the war to train Australian officers to go up there. And from then on, I mean, he gets involved oh, right. with 
um, the, with the Santa Maria forces taking over control of the communist unions and handing them over to the industrial groups. Uh, he's involved with a lot of legal agencies, such as you know, these bodies that are funded by the CIA through the Ford Corporation and other things. Uh, the whole whole range of these that he's got his that his hands involved with um and um and it's it's i mean they're the interest that they're really concerned with and of course we've got to remember that the british and the u.s are intimately connected in this i mean there's no sense in which uh, the british intelligence services and the australian ones i mean we're now called the five eyes you know, is the sort of popular phrase these days. Um, but this, you know, what I'm really saying is that if we, if if we got rid of the of the, of the leftovers of of the colonial system, uh, then it would be easier for everyone to see where the real lines of political power function in Australia and not get confused about thinking, oh, you know, it's to do with the Queen of England or the, the House of Windsor or something. Um, so you're saying it's like set dressing to keep people's eyes averted from reality? Well, I mean, it, it certainly has that function. Mm. Um, I mean, I think it has... I mean, I think Vaudeville. what I really want to say, <laughs> you know, the important point from a socialist point of view is that what it does is something far worse, well, something equally bad at least as that. And that is to reinforce the notion that some people are born to rule. Yes, yes. And that is, for me as a socialist, that is the exact opposite of the kind of values that a socialist wants to put forward. Yeah, I must say, every time there's this crap about uh, the um, monarchy and their babies and their all this sort of stuff and the gossip columns and stuff. I just, it just makes me cool. I just... <laughs> well, I mean, I mean how many parasites can we support? Well, mm. you know, I mean, obviously an endless number of them and their bastard children as well and, you know, on and on it goes and it has, it has done for hundreds of years. But the fundamental thing about any monarchy and, you know, we could go to the Scandinavian ones, which, you know, which, which you know, have been, are of a different order to the ones here uh, or the ones in the United Kingdom. But, I mean, if you were in the United Kingdom, the reason for being a Republican is not that you would then have a resident for the, you know, the head of state, because you've already got that. That's not the issue there. The issue is that it enforces this notion that some people, for whatever reason, whether they've inherited a title or whether they've inherited a fortune that was made out of exploiting working people, you know, in the 19th century or whatever it is, that the fact that they are born to this in some way entitles them to continue to live in these kinds of ways. And, and the whole principle behind socialist equality, um, and we're not talking here about everyone going to be the same, that's the last thing we're concerned about, that that it's, it's social equality, that our rights in the society should be equalised across it. So um, the mon monarchy uh, is actually, the reason for why it's defended is this ideological underpinning. Uh, they've abandoned the co concept of uh, the God King, thank goodness for that, uh, and now, because uh, that was the most improbable um, concept that uh, had leagues, but now it's actually purely to ensure that people believe and uh, worship at the shrine of uh, inequality, that some people are better than others because of what they were born to. 
Well, indeed, and you mention about the notion of the king also, also being a kind of some some kind of deity on earth. Well, of course, the last big example of that was in Japan, and after forty-five, Hirohito became, as somebody jokingly remarked, he became an ex-god. Yeah. Um, which is a very interesting thing to be, I suppose, to be yes. an ex-god. But what could still goes on in Japan? And it's, I mean, I think this reveals the point as much as anywhere else. Yeah, this is fascinating. I mean, if I mean, uh, I mean, what you've still got in Japan is a system. I mean, nobody is very interested in the monarchy except a tiny group of ultra right wingers. You know, I mean, I lived there for two years, and people, most people, didn't know that the, you know, it wasn't something that entered into their consciousness in the same way that it does here. Partly because the imperial household, these terrible old reactionaries try and keep the monarchy out of the spotlight. I mean, they want to keep, you know, this notion in which you know, the old rule was when the emperor went past, you turned your back because you weren't, you weren't, you, know, you, yeah, weren't, you weren't allowed to, to look at it. Yeah, that's right. You know, it was too important for you to look at the god. That's right. Um, so they're still trying to do that. But what it does do in a system where the Shinto is one of the religions of purity. It's not the only one in the world. I mean, it's, it's one of the continuing phenomena in ideological things across thousands of years. Um, and so that one of the things that the So he's the king of cle- cleanliness. Absolute cleanliness, yes. <laughs> in, in every sense. I mean, certainly, certainly in the kind of physical material senses, but in every other sense as well, this is what, is what the emperor is supposed to be the total and absolute embodiment of. Now, if you're going to have that in a system, then, of course, at the other end, you've got to have something that represents 100% filth. And there, and you have this with the Hindus as well, yeah. you have the untouchables. And there are th- two to three million untouchables in Japan. Now, you know, I mean, you're not allowed to say this openly in Japan anymore, but it still operates so that corporations maintain a list of the kind of surnames that Barakawen, as they're called, the untouchable families are likely to have. And if you've got one of these family names, um, you find it much harder to get a job in one of the big corporations. So that, as the Communist Party there argues, the reason now for getting rid of the emperor system, not so much the emperor himself, because, you know, he sort of, you know, hardly exists in any real sense, except as a, you know, kind of, as an actual person. I mean, it's not an important part of their system. The reason for getting rid of the emperor system is partly to be able to give complete freedom to the untouchables. Unless you get rid of the pure top, you can't get rid of the utter filth at the other end. Oh, this and, is fascinating. And that actually plays out, doesn't it, within our context? Oh, the amount of snobbery mm. that functions here. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I mean, the main argument, I think that the people who are the constitutional monarchists have is that it makes them feel superior to the rest of us. Yes, yes, yes. You know? But but you make a really interesting point, which is that they could not defend during that whole period of um, uh, the not becoming yeah. a republic. Yeah. They, re- they realised that they could not defend the notion that uh, the, mo- the monarchy is, a preferable, is preferable in principle. But so they therefore directed 
their attack on the Republican system on offer. On offer. And yeah. then, uh, obviously, people's sense of insecurity and uncertainty. Well, yeah, although the majority of people still wanted a republic. I mean, we must, you know... No, no, the people were wiser. I mean, I was there, I remember yeah. hearing an, a, a lady who was 89 <laughs> ringing up on a talkback program saying, I really was hoping that I would be here when we became a republic. Mm. But, of course, what they gave us to answer was just untenable. Well, I mean, what... Well, it depends... You know, I mean, if one of the people who said, well, if we get a a strong republic, I mean, I'm not talking about a socialist republic. No, know, no, that, no. That's God another forbid. Kind of issue. Just one that was going to change more of the constitution than just whether the person at the top, you know, supposedly at the top, um, because the real people at the top are in the boardrooms around the world. Exactly. And, you know, Langley and, you know, the CIA and that sort places. of stuff. But, yeah, the ones who were at the political facade, at least, at the top there, and, was going and to be somebody who was um, who, who was going to have to be an Australian citizen. Without any change in the anti-democratic well, structure. And, if, and, and people like Bob Carr came out openly and said, if you're going to change more than that, if you're going to reduce the power of the executive, that is, of me as Premier and the likes of me, etc., um, then I'm going to oppose the Republic. Because what they wanted was to maintain this increasing power that the executive has throughout the society. And we see that, I mean, it's playing out in Great Britain today, when for once they actually ask people to vote on something. That's right. And the scandal of the incredibly small group of uh, people that all go to to each other's soirees and conventions, etc., who are allowed in for all these jobs across the country. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I end up with this on the piece that, you know, that I wrote 20 years ago about this, and, you know, know, we're talking back to that now. But the number of people who, you know, who turned up to reinstate John Laws after the cash for comment scandal... That's just as amazing. I find that amazing. Go on, go on, go on, say it. You know, I mean, all the Labor leaders were there, the Whitlams, all these people. Mm. You know, I mean, the bloke should have been in jail. Yeah. You know, I mean, truly. um, You know, but no, they all turn up. And who's the guest of honour? Yeah. Jermaine Greer. And she says, I've only come for the money. And I thought, well, yeah, that's what's wrong with it. You know, um, you know. I mean, you know. I've been a freelance writer. I was a freelance writer for over thirty years. I know you've got to make a quid, but there are just some things you don't do, and that I would have thought was was uh, was certainly one of the things you should never have done. But the willingness of people to associate with power in any form, you know. You know. I mean, somebody. Well, many people have remarked that 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 association with power is a sexual aphrodisiac. Mm. You know, there's a real thrill and think, oh, oh, aren't I important or something? Um, a reflected glory. Well, indeed. And, and even but the power... I mean, there wouldn't be terms like that if that didn't exist. <laughs> oh, no. Well, I mean, it's intriguing that people's willingness to curtsy to this, you know, this other person um, is then taken as a proof that they are superior to the rest of us. Whereas, as Henry Lawson rightly said, I dipped me lid to no man. 
you know, I called no biped lord or sir. Now, that's the kind of, you know, that's the socialist republic. Um, but this high level, well, this pervasiveness of snobbery, and it, I mean, now it's not just confined, of course, to the royal family. The popularity of television shows like Downton Abbey mm. reinforces this as well. And yeah, so I... I, I, I... I don't watch these things. No, well, I don't. I mean, you know, neither do I, but I happen to, you know... We all no, no, no. Know. It, was a, it was a hugely popular thing. Oh, you know, and, and it, it's, 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 also, the, it's, it's also interesting how popular this stuff is with the Americans. Well, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, they've spent fortune after fortune in trying to get one of their sons or one of their daughters to become part of this aristocracy. <laughs> yes, know. and they finally uh, managed it. You know, well, I mean, they did two things. They, they kind of went off and, and paid for a spouse, but at the same time they went off and bought all the, all the sort of, as much of the works of art as they could to give themselves some bathe in reflected glory in some way over there as well. Um, but, I mean, we've got... This is what, when we're arguing for a socialist society... <laughs> We've got to take note of this, that these are some of the things that are deeply embedded in people's assumptions, even if they would never articulate them. No, that's exactly right. In fact, we should, uh, I mean, we can scoff, but the uh, real point of this discussion is that um, these underlying principles, these notions of uh, uh, that um, inheritance is more meritorious than effort Mm. and all these types of things are constantly being reinforced and that if uh, our society believes that it's actually moved forward in uh, our intellectual development, this is something that can tell you quite clearly that this is not the case. And it has terrible consequences and none, well, the two areas in which I, well, the three, I keep adding more now, um, <laughs> one of them is education yes. in Australia. Absolutely. The, the, you know, anyone who's teaching in a low SES school will tell you of the disasters that are functioning there. And that it's okay, basically, that we're all about being competitive and it's all about the top and not about actually... Uh, dealing with our obligations to our entire population. I, I find the education, what's being done to children, unconscionable, absolutely oh. unconscionable. And the fact that we refused to actually support the uh, needs of people, young people with uh, in, in um, mental crisis is, I mean, it's our fault. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, mean, you know, I mean, education, as you say, is certainly one of these and the housing crisis yeah. is, you know, is the other. I mean, in Canberra, you know, I mean, at some stage we could talk about how in how, how much inequality there is with, within with, within the ACT. It's the same levels as it is everywhere else in Australia. People think, oh, Canberra's is rich society. Well, a lot of people are, but the divisions are just as strong here. And it's the state now is because the government's in the hand of the property developers, Yes. what we've got now is the amount of public housing yeah. has virtually disappeared so that yeah. people in need of public housing are ending up in hospital beds. Yes. So, you know, you've got... You know, and the third area I was going to say, of course, where this inequality is obviously felt is in the provision of health services. You know, I mean, 
I mean, one of the examples you can put it down to is that the death rate outside the main metropolitan areas is 50% greater oh my goodness. than in those, in those areas. Oh, that, and this will be directly related to health services. Well, and, you know, and, the, and, the general, and the general provision of all kinds of services across there. Um, and that if you want to run a real you know, campaign about this, then they're the three issues because they're all locked into each other. You know, the, you know the, the three things are tied to each other. But these are the issues that, are, that you know, when you're promoting a socialist policy, I think you've, we always have to come down to people and saying, well, look, this is what it would mean in your real life. Uh, and these other things that are being flung around like, oh, isn't it wonderful we're going to have a royal visit or something, yeah. um, this, is a dis- this is a way, as you were saying before, of distracting you from what the real problems are and what the real effect of this belief that some people are born to be better than everybody else and that we should acknowledge this uh, and we should bow down to this and we should just accept it. Because, you know, remember when Christopher Pine was pretending to be Minister for Education, um, he said the private school system, and I have to say, let us say, the, to say private is a great big fib because they're not private. They are government subsidised out of, out of our taxes. That's right. They're not independent and they're not private. If they want to be private and independent, well, that's right. Fine. Let them do Let it. Let them go off and don't take the money. That's exactly what I think too. Yeah, but what he said was, in his language, private schools are in our DNA. And what a load of rubbish. Was, and what, and what, he, what he meant was, we will support the rich and the poor can take care of themselves because we don't really need them and we don't care about them. Uh, and that's, you know, when this argument that came up in recent times about, oh, you know, they're waging class warfare again, I'd think to myself, if only. If only. If only. But the education system is really, uh, you know, the, well, I mean, it's hard to distinguish housing from education and health because they're all locked into each other. But because of all the debate around trying to get something like equity in education. These are things that connect to why we've got to get rid of a monarchical system. Um, and, and this would apply, and I'd have to say this the other way around, is that even if we had a local, you know, a kind of royal family here, as they tried to set up, of course, in the 1850s, with what was called the Bunyip aristocracy, um, you know, the, you know, some of the Tories out here, when we were going to get colonial self-rule, they said, oh, we'll have a House of Lords. Um, and uh, as one of the uh, opponents said, yes, and what, what their coat of arms should be is a branding iron on a moonless night. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but, but even, if we, even if we had one, we would still have to get rid of it because of these things we've been saying about how it enforces this notion of born to rule, whether because of your birth or because of your inheritance of wealth or something else. Um, and so as we think again about the, you know, what it means to fight for the republic, let's 
those of us who are socialists remember that we want more than the tiniest change in the Constitution. Okay, Humphrey, thank you very much. All right, thank you. Lots of food for thought. (laughs) Yeah, more than that. Okay, right. Speak to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was it. (laughs) And that's the end of the program. Until next week, which is live and it's Radiothon. And cash for comments. Yeah, dig deep. And we've also, we're doing um, phone-ins in the last half hour. Coming up next is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. What are we going to go out with, Rebecca? Oh, I'm looking for a song. Something interesting. Yes. Keep talking. Hello, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> come on, come on. Oh. We've only got two minutes to go. Yes. Choose something. I went to... <clears throat> we should mention Radiothon's already yes. on, so yeah, listeners, you can dial in uh, 94198377 and yeah, dig deep, keep community radio on air for another 12 months and there for the, a long time to come. All right, here we go. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station and you're part of the family. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can keep our broadcasts alive. It's easy to donate. Head to 3cr.org.au slash donate. Your support really matters. Only you can power radical podcasts for another year. For more information and hours of great radio, go to 3cr.org.au.